Let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. I can easily say to you, I wish I knew how to preach so that I could share with you what is in verses 4 through 8 today in a way that would light up your hearts and minds. But I know that there's one that is able to pray with words and an unction and utterances that we can't pray, and so I trust him to preach as well to your hearts and ears to communicate the wonderful things that are here in these verses. They describe the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and the king of that kingdom and our relationship to him and the benefits that we derive from him and the difference that God has made in our lives to believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and not to stumble over it, not to consider Jesus Christ a stone of stumbling or a rock of offense, but indeed the living stone of God's house. Let me read to you verses 4 through 8. To whom coming, as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient. Whereunto also they were appointed. Amen and amen. We have made a use already this morning of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 through 24. For anyone listening to this sermon, I would strongly encourage you to go there. The Lord willing will be going there again soon. But I want you to remember that passage and consider it along with Ephesians 2, 10 through the end of the chapter to be the best two cross-references in the Bible for this passage of Scripture. We have before us the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the universal church. I'll explain to you why I'm going to take that position on these particular verses here. The church that is made up of the spirits of just men made perfect in heaven and upon his elect on earth, in particular those that have been believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and been baptized because they are the scattered saints, the scattered strangers of the Jews that Peter addressed this epistle to. They were elect and they were believers. They were strong in faith. And there's no such thing as being a believer or strong in faith without being baptized in the Bible. Because the two go together as a hand in a glove. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, is what the gospel injunction is in Mark chapter 16. Let's come right to this passage here and look at these words and trust the Lord to lead us in a way that would open our hearts and minds to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ 
and the kingdom that we are part of, and that kingdom may go under so many different names. It may go under the name of church. It may go under the name of body. It may go under the name of house. It may go under the name of temple. It may go under the name of tabernacle. It may go under the name of family. And a whole lot of other terms that I'm going to show you, but we are referring to the reign, the reign and lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ over His people and His angels in the great combined church, general assembly of the firstborn. To whom coming? These scattered strangers or these Jews in Asia Minor that were started in churches and converted by the Apostle Paul's ministry are being encouraged by Peter that they had come to someone and to something. To whom coming? This is the Lord. When it says whom, we have the Lord in the the previous verse. The last words of that verse are, The Lord is gracious. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who they had come to. And we're going to see Jesus Christ is in verse 5. To offer up acceptable sacrifices to God by Jesus Christ. He's the stone that is the chief cornerstone as we know from the rest of the New Testament. So I don't need to further elaborate on that. When it says to whom coming, you know that it's coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now most of the Jews didn't come to Christ. He came unto His own, but His own received Him not. But these Jews had believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's important. Coming to the Lord Jesus Christ is believing on Him. But you will never believe on Him or come to Him unless God chose you to it. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. There's God's election in John 6, 37. It's a shame that little children in Sunday schools are usually taught John 6.37 to read like this. He that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. But they leave out the first half of the verse, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And then seven verses later it says, No man can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. So there's the regenerating and lightening power of the Holy Ghost from God of heaven in order to cause someone to come to Christ. And John 6 is all about believing on Him. Believing on Christ is coming to Christ. These people had believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now this is significant. When you will think about the terminology that you that is used here to describe this audience. These believers in the Lord Jesus Christ were Jews. As Jews, they were second-class citizens in nations of the Gentiles, five of which provinces are listed in the first verse of the book. When it mentions to us Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Because they were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Jews would have kicked them out of their synagogues, so they would have been third-class citizens. They weren't Gentiles, so they were second-class. They were no longer Orthodox or traditional Jews, So they were third class because they were Christians. They were rejected by Gentiles. They were rejected by Jews. They couldn't even participate in synagogue worship. Coming to Jesus Christ was a costly decision in persecution and lost Jewish privileges. Think about it. And what were those privileges? The Jews put great confidence in their temple. Jeremiah 7 is a wonderful place. You trust in lying words. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. 
the temple of the Lord. That's what it says in Jeremiah chapter 7. Are these. They would look at that beautiful temple in Jeremiah 7 of Solomon and take great confidence that because they had the house of God, that meant they had God's approval and favor upon them, and they could go about and live any way they wanted to, and God would deliver them from judgment for their sins because they had the temple of the Lord. Well, the temple of the Lord didn't do them much good because Jeremiah in Jeremiah 7 says, what happened to the ten tribes? They they took some confidence in their form of religion as well, and uh, they've been taken into captivity. What's going to happen to you? And they were taken into captivity also because the temple of the Lord didn't save them. But the Jews put a great deal of stock in the temple of the Lord, including the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, who in Matthew chapter 24 said, Lord, look at how costly these stones are. Please think about the words. How costly these stones are. And Jesus said there won't be left two stones attached to each other, but they will be torn down to the foundation of this place. This house will not stand. In one particular place, Jesus called it his father's house. In John chapter 2, you've turned it into a den of thieves. In Matthew chapter 23, he said, your house is left unto you desolate. They put great stock in that temple, in that house, in their nationality, in their genealogy, in their pedigree, in their descent from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in the house of Jacob. They put great stock in the priesthood that operated in that temple and offered sacrifices that they knew were commanded by God in the Holy Scriptures given to Moses on Mount Sinai. They knew that they had the covenant of God. They knew their national history. If there was ever a nation that was nationalistic, it was the Israelites. And so to whom coming introduces us to Peter going to comfort these Jewish believers that were third-class citizens because they were rejected by Gentiles and Jews, that they had themselves a house and a temple that was entirely different and far superior to anything of the Old Covenant, whether it was Solomon's or Zerubbabel's. It's, it's wonderful. You know, they loved David. They wanted another Messiah to come that was the son of David. And when they would think son of David, it's going to be a warrior like David who's going to deliver us from Rome and free our nation and restore it to its national preeminence. Well, they didn't understand. And that's Jesus came totally different than that. And that's part of the reason he was a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense because they were looking for something different than the Savior that did come. Think about this with me. If you look at verses 4 through 6, to whom coming, and it's referring to Jesus Christ and these believers being lively stones or built up a temple, they, these scattered strangers, were key parts of the spiritual house and temple of God along with the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you be discouraged way out there, hanging out there in Asia Minor, you poor people, far from the land of Israel, far from the temple in Jerusalem, and not even allowed to worship in synagogues, you are part of a spiritual house and temple along with Christ in verses 4 through 6. They had distinguished themselves from Jewish reprobates in verses 7 and 8 because they had not stumbled over that stumbling stone, nor were they offended by the rock. They had believed on him, showing that they had been appointed as something very different for their lives. And they were the true generation and nation of God that the rest of Israel was not in verses 9 and 10 because it says in verse 9, Ye are a chosen generation. 
You are an holy nation. What encouragement! But I, and I want you to think of the kind of encouragement that they would have received from this epistle written by a Jew to them as Jews that though they were so far from Jerusalem and the nation of Israel and the temple of God and the worship of God and the priesthood, they had a temple, they had a house, they had a chief cornerstone, they had an altar, they had a priesthood, they had everything and it was far superior to what any of the Jews had. But let's lay hold of that as well and not just think about its original audience. Let's think about it ourselves. We look around and we think how insignificant we are, how despicable we are in the eyes of the world. The world would disallow this place as having any real value or religious worth. That is exciting. That the world would disallow us. Do you know what that tells you? You, It's raising the probabilities that we're right if that's the only evidence we had. Because if the world were to disallow us as a religion, they allow everything else except Bible Christianity. Can't you tell that they're trying to allow Islam in our country? Except Bible Christianity. They'll disallow us. They'll disallow this place as having any religious significance. There are churches in Greenville that are larger, that have better stones. But they're, they're dead stones. And we have living stones. Oh Lord, help everyone here to see it. This section, verses 4 through 10, is best understood and appreciated as exalting Israel that was Israel. Are you with me when I say that? For they are not all Israel which are of Israel, but there is an Israel that is Israel. And that Israel that is Israel are the elect Israelites, chosen of God and built together in a spiritual kingdom, called Israel, called the church, called the body, called the temple, called the house, with the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of David. Oh, brethren, I hope that all the verses are flooding back into your minds. Have we Gentiles been added into something that's called the tabernacle of David? Amen. What's a tabernacle? It's another word for house. Are we part of the house of David? Listen, brethren, Prince William and Prince Charles are part of the house of Windsor. Ah, wow. The house of Windsor, and I do them honor. They have rightful authority in England. I give them their proper honor. But compared to the house of David, they're inferior. Amen. Do we have a king sitting on a throne? of another nation who's of the house of David? Amen. Does the Bible want to continually tell us about our king that's of the house of David? Yes. He has sent one of his more pitiful ambassadors to tell you this morning that you are part of another nation and part of a generation and part of a house, temple, kingdom, body, family of God in the universe in which we are joined together with a citadel on Mount Zion in heaven above, which is the new Jerusalem, the city of the great God, the city of the living God. Do you like some of those verses in Hebrews 12? That is what we are part of. Do you know that other ambassadors will stand in pulpits today and say that they were sent by the denominational headquarters? Do you know where our denominational headquarters is? It's in heaven. It's the church of the firstborn. Do you know who the chief bishop is of our church? The Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know who the apostle is of our profession? The Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know who our high priest is? The Lord Jesus Christ. To whom coming? Have you come to the Lord Jesus Christ? Every one of you, have you come to the Lord Jesus Christ? You need to believe on Him and be baptized. There is no such thing as belief without baptism. 
Swear your allegiance to him in the waters of baptism by entering that watery grave and being raised from it in a symbolism of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, of your rising to walk in newness of life, and of the power of our the head of our church when he comes in a day soon and will raise all dead bodies from the ground. To whom coming as unto a living stone? Forget the dead stones of Solomon's temple. Did Solomon have some decent stones cut out? Did they come from foreign countries? Did some stone workers come from other nations that were skilled at crafting stones? Was it one of the wonders of the world? Was Solomon's temple beautiful? Did God enable a man and then give him a blueprint for building a temple that was mind-blowing? And it was mind-blowing. The temple of Solomon. But they were dead stones. Was there a living being in that temple? Yes, he would come and meet with the people between the cherubim that overshadowed the Ark of the Covenant, that overshadowed the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, the holiest sanctuary of all at the farthest end of that temple. Facing west, you could meet God. But only the high priest could go in there and only one time a year with blood. Oh, brethren, there's another temple that's been made. It's the temple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can go straight into the presence of God. We don't have to be in this place. This is not, this is a temple. This is a temple. This is a temple. But there's another temple. And you can go into that temple right into the presence of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because He's the living stone. He is alive forevermore at the right hand of God. Our temple is built on living components that are drawn together by the power of the Holy Spirit and united and drawn in line and fitted together because they all come and are joined together by one chief cornerstone in which Jews and Gentiles are all brought together and tied together and measured and fit out perfectly into a temple that God inhabits by the Holy Spirit and that God inhabits and the angels are a choir in it and the spirits of just men made perfect are already there and we're joining in worship with them today. We're an outpost on earth and the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back to take us all to heaven to where we will spend eternity in this great kingdom, nation, generation, church, body, family, temple of the living God. Amen. This is This is the gospel. And if you were a scattered Jew sitting out there in Asia Minor, do you know how comforting this would be? You had given up the temple. You had given up the priesthood. You had given up the altar. You had given up the blood that was shed all the time. You had given all those things up, but you had them, forgive the expression, in spades. You had them in abundance, far exceeding all the promises, blessings, and covenants, and sacrifices of the Old Testament. Ye all, verse 4, to whom coming as unto a living stone, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's alive forevermore. He has life in himself to give life to others. He shall even raise the dead. It doesn't matter whether it's Zerubbabel's temple, which was the second temple, which Herod added on to until it was a magnificent structure itself that the Jews, that the Romans tore to the ground in 70 AD. There is another temple And it is formed around the living stone of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of David, who sits in heaven on a throne at this hour, reigning over heaven and earth, until all his enemies be made his footstool. And the last enemy that will be made his footstool is death when he comes and raises the dead. We are part of a church that the likes of which there has never been. 
And our brother telling us from the trail of blood about 2,000 years of Baptist history, those scattered believers among the Gentiles and the Jews that were tormented and tortured and chased and persecuted economically, physically, socially, outcast, killed, tortured, maimed, burned, stretched apart in the rack. Oh, they were living stones of a temple and a church and a house far greater than those cathedrals in Europe that were made by masons and are all dead stones. Brethren, and you know, you go to school, you children, you go to school and they want to show you cathedrals and they want to show you the Vatican and they want to show you architectural ideas and they want to show you what was made in the Middle Ages, but they're all dead stones. Remember that. Remember that you're part of a church where every stone is living and it's built on a cornerstone that's the most alive being in the universe and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He was able to lay down his life and take it up again, John 10. That's life. That's a living stone. I have power to lay my life down. I have power to take it up again. That is our king, our priest, our bishop, the shepherd of our souls, the surety of our covenant, the mediator between God and men. He's the alpha and the omega. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. He's absolutely everything. He's the door. He's the vine. He's the chief cornerstone. He's elect. He's precious. And he was foreordained before the foundation of the world to come and die for you in time, which he did 2,000 years ago. This is our church that we're talking about right now. Our big church that we're part of. It is a mega church. And the membership role is the book of life. And the choirs, the angels. And they're your friends. It's valet parking because they go get your cars when the service is over in heaven. Because they're our servants. I just want you to think in as practical and as glorious of terms as you possibly can about the beauty of what the Apostle Peter, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is laying out about your relationship. You are in a relationship, but ye are come. Hebrews 12, 22, unto Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Ye are come. You know, I'm so sick of all the millennial stories that are laid out for the Jews and some future conversion of the Jews and making that little strip of sand over there that's worthless without U.S. dollars being invested into it. They're, they're all looking for that. You know, some millennial kingdom of the Jews to, to come in the future, some 144,000 Jewish missionaries. Well, that is so ancient and past. That happened in the days of the apostles when the first fruits of the Jewish nation were converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ, 12,000 by times 12 tribes. And then there was a greater multitude by far brought in by the preaching of the everlasting gospel being taken to the nations of the earth. And out of every nation, tribe, tongue, and kindred on earth, there was a multitude that no man could number, not some puny little number like 144,000. We're talking about the Gentile church that we're part of, and they are part of as well. They were just the first fruits. And Paul said they were in Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. As unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men. It is true that men disallowed the Lord Jesus Christ. Nope. We will not have this man to reign over us. Luke 19 and verse 14. Let his blood be on us and on our children. Crucify him. This man casts out devils by the power of Beelzebub. Disallowed indeed of men. 
Oh, and see, these Jews would have known all about how their relatives, their cousins, their second cousins, and their third cousins that were still over there in Israel, how they had treated the Lord Jesus Christ. They knew that. They knew that He had been disallowed. But He is the living stone. He was raised from the dead. The Jews may have killed Him because He laid down His life to them. But then He raised Himself from the dead and seated Himself at God's right hand, having taken the book of the covenant out of the hand of Him that liveth forever and ever. To whom coming, as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men. It doesn't matter what men think. Do all you children understand that? It doesn't matter what men thought of Jesus of Nazareth. It didn't matter what men thought of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what they think of the gospel or any part of scripture. We need to grow in faith. And grow thicker skin. So that whatever they say, we mock it. They don't know what they're talking about. We know what we're talking about. Because it's described to us in writing. A book that has stood the test of time of 3,500 years. And 40 authors called the Bible. And we trust it. Who cares what men think? The Bible ridicules them. To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. This is the truth. Disallowed indeed of men. In fact... In reality, in truth, men did disallow. That means to reject or refuse the Lord Jesus Christ. The learned men, the most religious men, powerful men of the greatest empire on earth, Herod and Pilate, being appointees of the Roman government, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, and the high priest, Caiaphas himself, all of them disallowed the Lord Jesus Christ, refusing and rejecting Him to be the cornerstone of the temple that God wanted to build because they wanted an earthly temple with an earthly king that would give them earthly advantage, forgetting the fact that they needed spiritual advantage in a spiritual kingdom when they met God at death. Disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God. Oh yes, it is sinful and foolish to follow a multitude but especially when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I want you to note about that sentence that it says this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. It doesn't matter who disallowed Him and how many degrees they had and how intelligent they may have been and how educated they were. It doesn't matter. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that what they thought they were doing to get rid of Jesus of Nazareth out of envy, He was dying for His people to provide the blood for the sacrifices for the sacrifice that is better than that of Abel. And that's to put away all our sins. The Apostle Paul would say, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. They can do whatever they want. God was manifest in the flesh and justified in the Spirit. Raised from the dead by the Holy Ghost. Romans chapter 1 and verse 4. Paul would say, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. You want to disallow the Lord Jesus Christ? And I'll tell you, if you haven't been baptized, you are disallowing the Lord Jesus Christ. You are rejecting Him and refusing Him that He is not worthy of you taking on a watery grave for Him who took on an earthly grave for you. May we always love the doctrine of baptism and encourage those to it. 
there's a day coming in which those that disallowed him will be shown before the universe under the wrath and power of Almighty God as Jesus Christ comes in flaming fire with his mighty angels to wreak vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. However, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God. God chose him. In Psalm chapter 2, the kings of the earth stood up against the anointed one of God. But he laughed and had them in derision. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. We're all talking about the same thing, aren't we? The kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God, where Jesus Christ sits on his throne. They may have disallowed him. Let us cast their cords asunder. Or let us cast their bands asunder and cast their cords from us. But he that sits in the heavens shall laugh and have them in derision. Isaiah prophesied that my chosen and elect servant would come and Matthew records it in Matthew chapter 12, that prophecy from Isaiah 42. Psalm 89 describes one being chosen out of the people upon whose shoulders the Lord laid the government of his kingdom. Peter had already written in chapter 1 and verse 20, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. When God foreordains something to happen, there's no men on earth that are going to stop it from happening. They may disallow as far as they're concerned, but when God purposes, it's going to come to pass. And it did come to pass. And so we have the fourth verse except for one word. Precious. Precious. To whom coming? You Jewish believers that have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've come to a living stone. It was, he was disallowed indeed of men, crucified by your nation, but he was chosen of God and he is precious. Peter's already cheating ahead to Isaiah 28 and verse 16, which is in your verse 6 here in 1 Peter chapter 2, but he calls him precious. Peter, by the Spirit, loved to call Jesus precious. When you look at 119, the precious blood of Christ. When you look at 2.6, he quotes precious from Isaiah 28.16. When you look at verse 7, unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. When you look at verse 4, but chosen of God and precious. That's four times in about 15 verses. Because he was precious to Peter. Is he precious to you? For something to be precious, it means to be of great price, having a high value and costly, of great moral, spiritual, or non-material worth, held in high esteem. Is the Lord Jesus Christ held in high esteem to you? He's the most valuable thing in the universe. What do you think is the most valuable thing? What winds your clock? What lights up your life? What energizes you? What intrigues your mind? What binds your heart? What gives you joy? What is valuable in your existence? He is precious. There is no one to be compared to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5, Ye also, our religion, And our church is vain. Unless Jesus Christ is precious to us. Unless He gets all the preeminence in this church. 
And we love and delight everything about Him. When it calls Him a lively stone, we love to focus on Him as the stone. Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Lively. I am alive forevermore. I was dead, John, but I am alive forevermore. Revelation 1.18. And on and on it goes. As the Father hath life in Himself, so hath He given to the Son to have life in Himself and hath given Him authority to execute judgment also because He is the Son of Man. And we could just go on and on. I think, I think someone one time preached a series of messages to you. He is altogether lovely. Amen. The, the living stone is altogether lovely. Right. Pick any form of measurement that you want compared to any other man, and He is altogether lovely. What is your beloved more than our beloved's? Oh, daughter of Jerusalem. Oh, uh, you don't have an idea or a clue, you poor little girls. I'm sorry that you had to get married to scumbags. Let me tell you about my beloved. Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verses 9 through 16. Let's always make the Lord Jesus Christ precious in our hearts and our lives and in our church. Without that, we are nothing. He's the chief cornerstone. You pull away the chief cornerstone, what's going to happen to any building? That structure is going to fall. It's not going to bring glory to God. Verse 5, ye also, ye also, you know that to ye there's a plural pronoun and also means that there's two things being compared. Jesus is a living stone and ye also, as lively stones, were living stones. Because the temple is not a temple made of dead stones. The temple is not gravel glued together like Solomon and Zerubbabel and Herod built. There's only two, the former and the latter. But they were made of gravel glued together. You all understand that, don't you? I don't care if it was marble or granite. I don't care how big the pieces were. It was gravel glued together. Do you want to be part of a temple and a house that's greater and better than that? then you want to be part of a living one where the stones are living. And the cornerstone is not the best piece of stone they found out of, you know, Tyre and Sidon and had it brought in by stone craftsmen. We want the Lord Jesus Christ there, the perfect chief cornerstone of our structure. And we are united into Him by God who elected us in Christ before the foundation of the world and Christ who died for us in the Spirit that regenerated us so that we are created in the image of Him who created us. We are stones that line up perfectly. We have been made partakers of the divine nature. We fit together with Christ perfectly into this superstructure of a kingdom, nation, generation, body, family, house that exists in this universe, that the world can disallow, they can be ignorant of it, they don't teach it in our schools, they don't talk about it, but it is absolutely true. And it's why we're gathered together today to hear the preaching of the gospel that tells us the good news and the glad tidings about something that doesn't meet the eye and that natural men know nothing about and we cannot discover it by any natural means except by revelation. We don't rationalize about the church, we believe the revelation about the church. And it's right here in front of us. Ye also, as lively stones. It's, brethren, hate buildings. We're going to get a building. But hate buildings. Because we want to value what's inside these four walls, not the four walls. We don't care what's behind me. 
We don't care what's over us. We don't care what's under us, except when I preach too long. Then you care what's on the pew. Brethren, do you understand? Those cathedrals that were built in Europe kept those people in superstition because those little people would go into those monstrous structures where Mark and Esther were just a couple of months ago, the cathedral in Strasbourg, and go in there and takes their breath away. They had to be in the presence of God. There's no presence of God in dead stones. Not since the Lord Jesus Christ. The presence of God is where living stones are. We want to emphasize that at all times. We don't care about the Vatican and how big it is and how beautiful it is. Nor do we care that the Mormons have in Salt Lake City a temple and a tabernacle. They just can't learn anything, can they? You know, when there was a temple, there wasn't a tabernacle. When there was a tabernacle, there wasn't a temple. But they've got both. I just want you to know that about Salt Lake City. So many so-called Christians put their money and their faith in a building made of dead stones that's totally dead. It wouldn't matter if we were meeting in a cave and our brethren have done so. It wouldn't matter if we were meeting in the catacombs under the city of Rome. Our brethren have done so. There were living stones there and there was the living stone there who walks among his golden candlesticks wherever they are and none of them have golden candlesticks. Are we all with me on that? The new building will not have a golden candlestick. Except Jesus Christ's golden candlestick, which you will not be able to see with your eye, but you will believe by faith because of the first three chapters of Revelation. And He walks among His golden candlesticks. Even foolish Baptists can get carried away with their building programs to miss their purpose. And that's to build up the living relationship of the stones inside that are sitting in the pews. Lord, help us. The emphasis of a church must always be on its spiritual union in and around the Lord Jesus Christ. Are built up a spiritual house. Verse 5, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house. These scattered Jews were spread throughout five different provinces that are named. This is not one church. This is not five churches. This is a whole band of local churches. And this isn't all the members of those churches. This is primarily the Jews that were in those churches that did not make up a church by themselves. We are talking about a structure larger than that in this place. Like Paul was talking about a structure larger than a local church in Hebrews chapter 12. Because both are going to reference Mount Zion, which is referring to a heavenly Jerusalem, one one organism, one large structure, one large temple that incorporates them all, even though they are part of smaller temples. We must rightly divide the word of truth. What is the smallest temple that we know of that God inhabits right now? Beautiful. This is the temple of the Lord. Sorry, folks. This is. But you can say the same thing to me. This is the temple of the Lord, and so we've got multiple temples in here. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the living God. And there is another temple of the living God with which Jesus Christ presides over that meets in heaven. It was called the General Assembly. Local assemblies, General Assembly. Church of the firstborn, not churches of the firstborn. Does Romans 16.16 refer to churches of Christ? Does 2 Thessalonians 1.4 refer to churches of God? Plural. But there's a singular. Yes, we believe in the universal church. You know, there are landmarkers that only believe in the local church and don't believe in the universal church. Then there are Catholics that only believe in the universal church and don't believe in the local church. Where do we go? Right down the crown of the road 
ignoring both ditches. We know that both are taught in the Bible. That a local church, when God adds members to it, creates one body by itself. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 12, 27 to the church of Corinth, now ye are the body of Christ. He would say of them, when the whole church comes together. Now when you get the whole church coming together, that can't be the church in heaven and the general assembly until Jesus pulls that assembly together. But the whole church can come together down here to execute judgment. And and men should be ordained in every church. Because each church has its own pastors and ministers and deacons assigned to them. They don't have any office or authority in any other church. It just goes, oh Lord, help. I don't have time and neither do I want to distract you with some long explanation of kingdoms and king, kingdom and kingdoms and church and churches and body and bodies. There's a local one and there is a universal one. There is the general, I'm, I'm, let's see, four, four times general assembly in church of the firstborn in heaven. I get so excited about this subject though, because here's an example of how we got to study the word of God. What's the smallest house of God taught in the New Testament? The smallest house of God. Be careful. Just think. It's equal to the smallest temple of God. It's your body. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want to have my house taken off me and and get a new house made without hands in heaven. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the first six verses. That's as small as it gets. Then there's the house of God that's a local church. Then there's the house of God that's in heaven. It's made up of lively stones, and Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone of the whole superstructure that meets in heaven. And I could show you multiplied verses for each one of these. God's temple is a physical body, a local church, a universal church, or heaven itself is called the temple of God. God is the builder of this house. Notice what it says in verse 5. He also is lively stones, are built up a spiritual house are built up, that is a passive voice verb, meaning that God's doing the building, and we are the stones that are being used by God as he builds his superstructure. This is the elect family of God being put together by faith on earth in a practical, visible phase of that church. Listen, there's an eternal phase of the church. We were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, that every stone was chosen in Christ. All the stones were picked out before God created Adam and Eve. All the stones were lined up. But it took 4,000 years for Jesus Christ to come and lay down his life to pay the legal price for that structure to be built and establish himself as the chief cornerstone when he ascended up into heaven. Then each of those stones are formed and shaped by the wise master builder, God Almighty, by regeneration, by forming us into the image of him who created him. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 24, then when we believe the gospel, we come into outposts like this where we embrace our chief cornerstone and we are shown to be visible followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is when men were pressing into the kingdom. The law and the prophets were until John, since that time the kingdom of God is preached and all men presseth in, and press into it. Yes, right. and the, the violent take it by force. But you know what? Is there still a phase to that kingdom and church and body and building? Yes. Make your calling and election sure, and there shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is another phase of that kingdom that we can't see right now, and it is our wisdom to remember that phase so that this phase doesn't discourage us. This phase can be discouraging. That phase isn't discouraging. 
That phase is what chapter 1 was all about, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house. Brethren, there is so much that could be taught right now on those words. Do you care about the house of Windsor? Do you care about the house of Rothschild? Do you care about the house of David? Do you care about the house of Jacob? New Testament writers described gospel privileges by using Old Testament terminology for the national privileges of Israel. Listen to these. This study is a study unto itself. Nation. How many of you have said a pledge to the flag of the United States in your life? You know, we put our hands over our hearts, or we salute, we look at an ensign of the nation. I pledge allegiance. But we're part of another nation. Does it say it in verse 9? And holy nation? Do you know what those scattered Jews would have thought? They were no longer citizens of the nation, and they were no longer members of the synagogue. What did they have left after following Christ? They were part of a holy nation. I can't take the time. The study on each one of these is wonderful. It'll be in your outline. Nation. Listen to these terms. Old Testament terms used by New Testament writers to show the superiority of the gospel kingdom of Jesus Christ to anything the Old Testament ever had. Nation, church, or congregation. Were the Jews in the Old Testament ever called a church? Were they ever called a congregation? Oh, congregation. All the time. How about Tabernacle of David? Are we Gentiles and we believe the gospel made part of the Tabernacle of David? Is God raising up the Tabernacle of David again? Since the Lord Jesus Christ. That was written in Acts chapter 15, a few years after the crucifixion of our Lord. How about the house of God? That's what we have right here in 2.5. That's what it says in 1 Timothy 3.15, where Paul told Timothy how he can behave himself in the house of God. The temple of the living God. 2 Corinthians 6.16. We can't have fellowship with the works of darkness because we're the temple of the living God. The habitation of God. Ephesians 2.22. You read it last night in preparation. Are we the habitation of God? Where did God habitate before Jesus Christ came and set up His church? In the Old Testament. Between the cherubim. Where is He now? In the presence of God. Can anybody go? Can our children go meet Him? Yes. Mount Zion. Is that a New Testament word? It is when it's spelled with an S. What's it referring to? The one that's spelled with a Z from the Old Testament. We have a Mount Zion. It's up there. It's not in the Middle East. Do you know how many pulpits today, especially Cornerstone Church down in Texas with John Hagee in the pulpit, is talking about everything over there in the Middle East? All he wants to do is talk about the Jews in the Middle East. I want to talk about the living stones and the living stone that's in heaven and the few that are upon earth. Most of them have already gone to heaven. Jesus is coming back soon to take the few that are left to be with those many that are there. It's called Mount Zion. It's called the city of the living God. It's called Jerusalem. It's called a kingdom. It's called a family. It's called a commonwealth. It's called fellow citizens. It's called the household of God. It's called a generation. Look at verse 9. Ye are a chosen generation. Do you know what that but? 
Do you know that inspired disjunctive that starts verse 9 is contrasting these believers with those in the last part of verse 8 that were appointed to disobedience. That's the doctrine of reprobation in the last part of verse 8. And it's the doctrine of election in verse 9 because it says, Ye are a chosen generation. Notice the difference that God made among the Jews. They are not all Israel which are of Israel. Generation, priesthood, peculiar people. people. These expressions are used in both Testaments. These expressions are used in both Testaments to point out that we have a nation and we are part of a unique group of people segregated and separated from all other people to be the peculiar people of God. So the terminology from the Old Testament is used in the New Testament to describe our spiritual relationship in Christ. And spiritual doesn't mean it's less important. What you can't see is eternal. What you can see is temporal. Get that get that rule down fast. If you can look at it, it's going away. If you can't see it, it's here forever. That's what 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18 teach us. Peculiar people, people of God, country, altar, tabernacle, house of Israel, Israel of God, Jews, kings, and thrones. Every one of those terms can be shown in its New Testament significance to have greater value than the Old Testament throne. Do you want David sitting on his Old Testament throne? Or do you want Jesus Christ sitting on the throne of God in heaven? Which one do you want? Which one do you think is better? Are they close? Is the scale, Do you have to look carefully at the scale? Or does the scale do this? And flips over. Oh Lord, I thank you. Father in heaven, people get excited about the house of Rothschild. I've already told you, there's enough I've told you about the local church. A local church is called the whole church. A local church judges its own members as whether they're in or they're out. And a local church can't touch a man's membership in heaven. Do you think that, do you think that something goes up into heaven and takes somebody out of the book of life? There's local churches. They're totally different, but they're part of, they're part of that universal church. So the outposts of it on earth. And we're, we're responsible for managing and ruling ourselves with our own ministry, with our whole body, and all the members performing duties toward one another. The eye and the hand and, and parts like my body. My body parts, motivated by my spirit, are not your body parts that are motivated by your spirit. And our church, which has all of its different members that make up its body parts, are motivated by the spirit here. And another church has its own body parts, and we don't perform those functions to each other. There's no church on earth that has the eyes for this body. The eyes of this body are here. I'm referring to the terminology used in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 through 27. And holy priesthood. We got a verse 5. And holy priesthood. Do you know how sad those Jews would have been to have lost the priesthood? See, we don't appreciate priests. Because we've, those of us that have been Baptists have never thought about a priest. We've never been to a priest. We've never confessed our sins to a priest. But these Jews had grown up around priests all their lives and they knew they were God's priests and they knew they descended from Aaron and they knew that their genealogies were incredibly important and they knew that they had the ear of God and they knew that they could go in and minister behind the veil. They knew all this. They knew that they had the ins and outs of all the sacrifices and all the ornamentation they wore and all the ornamentation and the accessories and the tools of the temple and temple worship and of the altar. They knew all that those priests did. But do you know what? Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood. They also knew the difference between a priest that was acceptable and a priest that was unacceptable. If a priest tried to offer sacrifices to God and wasn't holy, what happened to him? He would die. But they were holy 
They were a holy priesthood. Do you know how wonderful that is? The Jews, more than any other religion, had a very important role for priests all the way from Aaron. But Jesus has made us kings and priests. Do you know how he's going to combine those ter- how Peter's going to combine those terms in verse 9? He's going to call it a royal priesthood. Is that a royal priest? How? Listen, here's a Jew. Royal priesthood. The kings come from Judah. The priests come from Levi. How can there be a royal priesthood? Because there's been a change of the priesthood in Hebrews chapter 7. It comes out of Judah now by the order of Melchizedek. And the great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, has made every one of us priests. Do you fully appreciate that little expression in the middle of verse 5 and holy priesthood? You can go into the presence of God and be received. You can go boldly. You don't have to go timidly. You don't have to go fearfully. God is going to hear you when you come in the name of Jesus because Jesus sits at the right hand of God as our great high priest. He's made one offering for all sins forever. We can go straight into His presence. It's called in holy priesthood. Oh, Peter, by the inspiration, this fisherman's doing a decent job, isn't he? To these scattered Jews that were out there in Asia Minor, here's Peter encouraging them that they have a holy priesthood, that they have a temple that doesn't have anything to do with earthly Jerusalem. It's a spiritual house made in the heavens where Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone, and they can offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? They can offer up sacrifices. We did it last Sunday in the second service. By Him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. That is called a spiritual sacrifice. It's only a few pages back in Hebrews 13 and verse 15. I just quoted it to you. But look at verse 16. But to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. When we do things for our brethren, it is a sacrifice of the New Testament. Isn't that great? I can give something to you, but God considers it giving something to Him. We can just praise Him with our lips. We don't have to give Him the fruit of our bodies. We don't have to give Him our firstborn. We don't have to give Him the fruit of our flocks. Oh, we give Him a little tiny bit, I guess, from time to time when we give. But the fruit of our lips, giving praise to His name. Even in the Old Testament, they understood that. Hosea in chapter 14 of Hosea said, Bring with you words. And offer Him the calves of your lips. Those are the sacrifices God wants under the New Testament. We are bound to give thanks always to God. Acts and gifts of charity are also pleasing sacrifices of the New Testament. And we're supposed to give our bodies a living sacrifice. Our singing trumps. Our singing trumps all the trumpets of David and Solomon. I don't care that Solomon had 120 trumpets that sounded like one trumpet. When this church sings and sings with the grace of God in their hearts and sings about the Lord Jesus Christ, we're outdoing anything Solomon and David ever put together. Because God wants to be worshipped in spirit and in truth, not with trumpets. And so we worship Him that way. Acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you ask anything in my name, my Father will give it to you. Because His name is the great high priest between God and men. He's the one mediator between God and men. So it says in verse 5, that we can offer up spiritual sacrifices, thanksgiving, charity, brotherly kindness, our giving in the church, our singing in the church, giving our bodies a living sacrifice by following Jesus Christ in how we live 
and it's acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Filthy Gentiles, though everything we do is touched by sin because we still have it in our members, it's made acceptable to God by Jesus Christ who's washed away all the imperfection through his precious blood. And then uh, Peter says to these Jews, wherefore also, meaning, uh, let me draw a conclusion of what I've just said. I didn't come up with those ideas on my own. I may have started off that way in verses 4 and 5 by just telling you the facts, but it's found in the Scriptures. And to a Jew, to hear those words, it is found in the Scriptures, and then to have Isaiah 28, 16 quoted would be all the power they needed. And not, brethren, it should be all that we need. Amen. We want the Scriptures of God. Now the Scriptures were read and explained to the Jews and they would take Paul and try to kill him. They did kill the Lord Jesus Christ. They did kill Paul eventually by having him killed at the hands of the Roman Emperor. They killed James. They killed Stephen. Even though those men appealed to Scripture. We don't ever want to fight Scripture. Because that disobedience to the word that is described down in verse 8, even to them which stumble at the word, we don't want to stumble at the word of God. When the, when the Lord shows us something from the Bible, we want to fall before it and believe it. We want to esteem all his precepts concerning all things to be right, and we want to hate every false way. It is contained in Scripture. Wherefore, also it is contained in the Scripture. And he quotes Isaiah 28, 16. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. See, he's taken the word elect by using chosen in verse 4. He's taken the word precious and used it in verse 4. He's used the word stone in verse 4. And he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. My Jewish brethren, Peter is saying to you out there in Asia Minor, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll never be confounded. No Jew is going to be able to make you look bad because you don't have temple worship available. You are in a temple in heaven and you're part of the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You are a priest to yourself. You're a royal priest. You're a chosen generation. You are part of a holy nation. You're a holy priesthood. And Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. Even though men disallowed Him, God chose Him. So it's contained in the Scriptures. If you believe on Him, you'll not be confounded. There's no pagan that will ever confound us. You're never going to get to heaven and see Muhammad standing next to the Lord Jehovah. The Lord Jehovah and Muhammad don't get along well. You're going to find that out real soon. When you get to heaven, you're not going to be confounded. There's one rock on which you should rest. There's one stone that you should come to. There's one priest you should believe in. There's one name you should invoke when you get in the presence of God. Invoke the name of His well-beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll never be confounded. Paul would quote this in Romans 9.33, quote it again in Romans 10 and verse 11, and say, He that believeth on Him shall never be ashamed. There will never be shame. There will never be confusion. You will never be surprised if you base the rest of your life, your death and the afterlife on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.